Hey, let's talk about the book, which is get it's getting a lot of uh, publicity, a lot of acclaim, Michael. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm really happy with uh, it's it's uh, it's already far exceeded my um, expectation, okay. you know, because um, yeah, I'm just I'm really happy. I mean, one writer said that you know he wrote that this is the rock and roll book to read this year. Wow, which was yeah. which was pretty pretty cool, and um, other other reviews people really like it, and not just people who are fans of Jimmy Wilsey, the guitar player that the book is about, because the book is more than that. And um, when when someone actually reads it, you know they see that it's also the story of the punk band the Avengers, who were an important San Francisco based band. That it's the story of Chris Isaac and Silvertone. It's the story of how the song "Wicked Game" became a uh, you know a top ten international you know, hit that to this day is being streamed millions and millions of times every month. It's the story of kind of, it, it looks into sort of drug addiction. It's really the, also the story of the dark side of rock and roll. So there's a lot that's going on, you know, a lot of layers to the, to the book. Well, let's, let's start by talking about why Wilsey, James Wilsey is important. Can you kind of encapsulate that? Yeah. I mean, well, Jimmy Wilsey was a incredible guitar player and a very creative guy and he's a very underappreciated guitar player i mean in my opinion he's better than a lot of guitar players that are that show up on these you know the 100 best guitar players lists he had a of you know his 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 guitar playing that you can listen to you know obviously when you listen to it has a very unique tone he was a master of utilizing the tremolo bar the volume pedal he always he pretty much always played a stratocaster and so you know the dynamics of a stratocaster and and working with reverb and delay you know all those things combined i mean he was a, he was sort of a master of using those things to create very distinctive guitar parts for songs and i mean the one that practically everybody in the world has heard is essentially a two note intro to wicked game and right i mean those two notes anyone hears that and they know what song they're listening to and that in itself is quite a feat but though what his playing there it just brings the listener into the song that's something that that Lenny Kay pointed out when I spoke to him Lenny Kay from you know Patty Smith group and the rock critic rock historian you know just I mean that Jimmy was he his playing was he wasn't like a showboat wasn't like a look at me kind of guitar player he was really about enhancing the song about framing the singer who was Chris Isaac you know in the case of for most of the time that, that most of the playing that, that Jimmy did. So yeah, people should, people need to know about him because he's, he's a, he was a brilliant guitar player, you know? So that's sort of the, I guess, sort of the big picture of why, why Jimmy Wilsey. And, you know, I had a lot of different reasons why I wanted to write a book about Jimmy Wilsey. And it kind of started, I mean, it almost, when he died, I was, shocked because he was only 61 years old 
and and while that might seem like old to uh, to someone who's in the uh, you know a, a teenage or 20 20 something fan for those of us who are a little older 61 is is not you know i mean it's like when you get up into your 80s that's sort of your you're, you know, you're nearing the end of your life for most people, but not when you're 61 years old. And I was shocked. And and then the next thing I, I was like, I kept waiting for an obituary to show up in the local papers to, in the Bay Area because he lived in, in the San Francisco Bay Area for 20 years and played in two important bands and, and was responsible for Wicked Game becoming a hit. So, I mean, there's plenty of reasons why there should have been an obit in the local papers, but there wasn't. And then he lived for another 20 years in L.A. and there was nothing in the L.A. Times and there was nothing in Billboard. And so so I ended up writing um, a piece for Rolling Stone. You know, I, I can I talked to uh, the managing editor at Rolling Stone and said, really, you know, this guy's important. There should be a story about him. And, you know, he understood why. And so I did that. And then I did, um, you know, a much more in-depth piece for Rhythms. And, um, you know, and it was do- when I did that story, you know, I was really getting a lot deeper into who Jimmy Wilsey was and various aspects of his life. And and it was after that story ran and I sent a link to Greel Marcus and Greel emailed me back and Greel knew I was working on a book that was going to be a collection of my music writing. And so he says, you have to include this story in your book. And I thought, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. So then I... Um, I, I thought, well, I think I needed to just talk to a few more people. There's a little bit, I just want to add a little bit more to this than what I've got. And pretty soon I realized that this was more than an expanded feature story that was going to be in, in another, in a collection of stuff, that this was a book of its own. And, and then I then spent the next um, basically three plus years, I was talking to people right up to practically the time when, um, the book went off to the printers. I mean, I was making changes right to the 11th hour to the PDF that went to the printers. And then even there's a first printing sold out. So now, the, so when, before the PDF went off, back, went to the printer for the second printing, I was able to like make some changes and add a little bit that I had learned in the interim. So, so the second edition of the book has a little bit more than the first edition, but I mean that's sort of how this is this has been. And uh, I just became obsessed with you know both telling his story and then telling these other stories that I mentioned that showed up as I was um, working on the book.
say that Jimmy's story is the story of the American dream, which always contains both dream and nightmare. And his ending was tragic, wasn't it? He did have a tragic, somewhat of a tragic life in many respects. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he, you know, he died homeless and a heroin addict. And he'd been a heroin addict at that point for, I don't know, 25 years or something. I mean, he started using heroin, smoking heroin in 1985, and he died in um, 2018. So, I mean, almost almost 25 years, 30 years. So that's really, um, that's really sad, you know, that for, and that's certainly very tragic. And yet he, and, and it was certainly a nightmare, you know, what he went through and what people around him went through during that time. But he also earlier in his life, and, and even when after he'd started using heroin, um, he had some amazing peaks. I mean, to be a musician who is responsible for a song that was and is as popular as Wicked Game, and to have played the key guitar, you know, the guitar intro that everybody knows, and to, you know, be on the, you know, the Tonight Show and Johnny Carson Show. And he basically toured the United States and Europe after the song was a hit and and, and as it was becoming a hit and um, playing to sell out crowds. And he, you know, he had a actress girlfriend, you know, right before, you know, they got together not long before Wicked Game became a hit. And so, I mean, he had some really some real peak points in his life. And he had some really very meaningful relationships um, with a number of women in his life and some, some very strong friendships and made music that I think was going to last forever. So, you know, so there were real peaks to his, to his life and highs to his life, non-drug highs to his life. So, yeah, I mean, I think, I think at one point, one probably could say he had achieved the American dream, but then it all, you know, went to, went to pieces and it went to pieces fast. with Chris Isaac. I noticed Chris recently played at Jazz Fist in New Orleans, still going strong, still performing that song, no doubt, in, in concert. That song has been streamed just on Spotify. We're not talking about Apple Music. We're not talking about YouTube. Just Spotify. It's been streamed 320 million times. And during the three plus years that I worked on the book, it was streamed 220 million times. So that just shows you how much interest there is in that song right now. I mean, millions of listens every month to that song. 
and uh, it's on the radio all over the world. So yeah, I mean, and the thing is, that was Chris Isaac's hit song. He has he has he's had one major hit hit record, and that was Wicked Game. But you know, Chris Isaac is a is a great singer. He's written many many really strong songs, and he is a a very strong entertainer and musician. And so all of that comes together, allowing him to, you know, to tour and to maintain an audience and and add new fans to his audience. You know, like you say, I mean, he just played the, the New Orleans, uh, the Jazz Fest. And um, he's, I think he's out on tour right now. Yeah, I mean, I mean, he's, he's had a, a very successful touring life based on and, and he's been in movies he's been, you know he's been in a number of movies and he he's had a couple of tv series so yeah he's he's still going strong um and of course if uh Willsey had had his name on the songwriting credits the story might have been different i suppose and happens to a well, lot of guitarists, I, doesn't it? I i well i don't know how different the story would be in terms of um what happened to jimmy because I think there were there are, the book gets into sort of why people can become addicted to to hard drugs and which we don't have to get into all that here. But I can summarize to say that various things happened in Jimmy's life starting early on in his life that are factors can be factors in someone becoming addicted to hard drugs. And I don't think that, you know, when Jimmy had money, he blew through it. I mean, he spent it on drugs. He spent it on guitars. He's, I mean, he did not hang on to money. And there were times when he had money. He had checks that were literally sitting in envelopes, you know, inside his front door while he's getting evicted from the apartment. This is in like, like 93 or 94, 94, I think, actually. He's getting evicted, right? He has money, but... But he can't get, you know, he, whatever, you know, because of he's messed up on drugs, he that he can't literally take the checks across the street to the Bank of America that was practically right across the street from where his apartment was and deposit them and write a check to his landlord. Wow. So he gets evicted from his from his apartment. So, it you know, it wasn't like it wasn't like he was homeless in the end because he didn't have any money. I mean. Now, it's possible that he had run out of money, but if he had, it was because he had blown it, you know, just blown it on a bunch of bunch of stuff. And there would have been more coming because he to this day, there's royalties that um, now the royalties will be going to his son, um, Waylon. And hopefully they'll they're going to help pay for Waylon's college education. Uh, Waylon's 18 and um, and and just hopefully the money will just help help Waylon be able to to have a very uh, successful life but um i don't think it would have changed jimmy's situation in terms of heroin addiction of in terms of liver failure that caused him to have to have a you know get a new liver and then he wasn't and then he didn't take the drugs and so he ended up di- dying of multiple organ failure i mean all that stuff i think still would have happened whether he had had more money or just the money he he had.
Isaac for what 13 years but let's go back just before he met Chris Isaac he moved to San Francisco in 1976 and his career kind of took up with um the Avengers and who, who were actually played the support for the Sex Pistols can you fill us in on the scene then particularly the Mabahu Mabuhay Gardens which is a kind of a legendary venue mentioned in at least one song that I know of and that that scene at the the time which was really a kind of a seminal scene wasn't it absolutely I mean Jimmy arrives in San Francisco in August of 1976 and at that point the the New York punk scene which had begun really around you know 74 75 those bands particularly the Ramones had gone to England and the musicians have who formed the Clash and the Sex Pistols and other seminal English punk bands were at the Ramones show and were inspired to get partially inspired by the Ramones show to get their bands together. Now the music that those bands are making is getting to the Bay Area and getting to the United States in general. And so so in the in December of 1976, a band, uh, as I recall, it's the nuns, played a show at this supper, Filipino supper club called the Mabuhay Gardens that was on Broadway in San Francisco's North Beach area. And which is that also that that area is both where the beats hung out. It's where City Lights Books is, but it's also where all the kind of topless clubs in San Francisco are, most famously the Condor nightclub. So anyway, the Mabue has this first punk show and then more punk shows. You know, maybe there's like five of them in January. And then and basically by about March of 77, every night three bands at the Mabue Gardens. This is a scene. And there's it's it's slowly growing to where at, at a you know at a certain point a popular punk band could play the Mabue and have like 400 people there packed it'd be packed and to see them normally it would be more like you know maybe there's a hundred people or you know but that was was happening more and more frequently so so this scene developed this community developed of people who were digging not just the British bands, not just the New York bands. I mean, everyone dug all those bands, but these local bands like the Sleepers, like Negative Trend, like Crime, like the Nuns. And then in June of 77, a band called the Avengers gets formed, uh, fronted by a woman, young woman who was a student at the San Francisco Art Institute named Penelope Houston and a great guitar player, Greg Ingraham, uh, powerful drummer, uh, Danny Furious, and initially another Art Institute student named Jonathan Postal on bass. And they start playing the Mabue Gardens in June of 77. And a month later, Jimmy, well, Jimmy Wilsey sees them and he really likes this band a lot. And 
he says to his girlfriend, I could play bass better than that guy. <laughs> and so he, in July, he goes up to Penelope Houston, the singer, you know, lyricist, and, and says to her, could you use another guitar player in your band? And she says, no, but do you play bass? And he says, yeah, I play bass, sure. And she says, well, talk to the, uh, to the guys in the band, and if they want to have you audition, then you could audition for us. So he goes and talks to the guitar player. He tells the guitar player that he doesn't play bass. He hasn't played bass before. And the guitar player, Greg, says to him, well, you know, he says, oh, you don't play bass. So do you have a bass? And he tells him no. And he says, there was something about this guy, Jimmy Wilsey. He said, you wanted him in your band whether or not he could play bass. <laughs> I mean, you just wanted him. There was something about his personality and his, his charm and his, um, his, just his casualness and his sense of humor. Well, Jimmy shows up with a bass at, for the audition and, he, and he's like laughing and he's telling, tells Greg, you know, I stopped at a pawn shop on the way here and I picked up this bass for 75 bucks. <laughs> you know, I mean, that was sort of how casual he was. And uh, so he auditions and the guitar player, Greg, says he was perfect. He fit in perfectly. He could play bass just fine for the Avengers. And the thing was, Jimmy was, by that point, was a very accomplished guitar player. He had he'd played and, and jammed and worked on stuff throughout high school. And he'd really worked, worked on his guitar playing. And he'd, he'd studied guitar players that he really liked and analyzed why they played, why what they played worked for particular songs that he thought were really strong. And so so this was a guy who was very serious about playing the guitar. And I mean, I think if you can play the guitar, then you can play the bass. I mean, it's it's different. And Jimmy said, you know, once he started playing bass, he understood how how that there were differences. But, you know, if you've mastered the guitar, you can play bass. It's not that they're in the same realm. So then he was in the Avengers and the Avengers quite quickly became a very popular band within the San Francisco punk scene, which means that they could, you know, initially, you know, I mean, pretty quickly they could, you know, get 200 and then 300, then, you know, that kind of, those kind of crowds. Now, that's not, you know, in the bigger scheme of things, being able to play a club and, and attract 400 people is not, that is, you are not a rock star in the normal scene. You know, if, you got to be, you know, if you're maybe if you're playing for 2000 people, 4000, 5000, then you're like moving into like sort of rock star territory. But um, within the punk scene, Jimmy was a star. And if you think about it, if you were in a room with 400 people, I mean, you wouldn't even be able to see everybody. And if all those people were looking at you and a fan of yours, basically, that would be overwhelming. So, you know, so within, like I say, within the punk scene, Jimmy, you know, Jimmy became a star and it was all, it all happened pretty quickly.
a fascinating story and it was a terrific era. You got to know him a little bit, didn't you? You met him in the early 80s and uh, you became a friend of his. How well did you get to know him over the years? Well, I mean, I met him in 1982 when I went to see a, a show by Silvertone, which was a band that basically there was there was a trio called Silvertone that Chris Isaac had formed. And then Chris Isaac met Jimmy and Chris Isaac got sick of his of his trio, which was basically a rock, pretty much a rockabilly cover band that did a few original songs. So he broke up that band and then he was kind of working with Jimmy for a little bit. And then the two of them formed a new version of Silvertone. Um, Jimmy, Jimmy brought in the bass player. They brought back the drummer from the trio. And then it was him and Chris. And really that band, him and Chris were, according to Jimmy, were partners. And they were like running the show of, of that version of Silvertone. And so that band formed at the end of 80. In 82, I saw them. Uh, at a club and really, um, really was knocked out by them. And I was working on a story at the time for of rising bands in the San Francisco scene. And so I included them. They were sort of the leadoff band. And uh, but then I didn't see them again until um, till the beginning of 85 when the first album came out, the first Silvertone. Well, it was really a Chris Isaac album at that point, but it was it was Silvertone. It was him and Jimmy with Eric Jacobson producing. Um, and then some session musicians playing bass and drums. And that's when I saw them again. And then I saw them a fair amount between then and 91. And then I became friends with Jimmy in the early 90s. And it's kind of started both because I was uh, interested in writing about digital music and how you could use a computer at that point as a sort of a recording studio, you know, multi-track recording out of your computer which was brand new. And Jimmy was, was doing that. And he was all about that. And so I interviewed him for a story and we started hanging out. I also had an independent uh, indie label and I was trying to get Jimmy to do a, a instrumental solo album. I couldn't get him to do it, but because we were getting together to talk about it, we, we just became friends. Um, and so for, I'd say off and on for about a year or so, we were hanging out. And, uh, you know, so so I got to know him. I mean, we were friends on the level of there was music that we both liked. You know, there was stuff we could talk about. There was, I was really interested in the digital recording he was doing. We were both big Rolling Stones fans and he had a whole ton of, of uh, Rolling Stones videotapes. So we would watch those sometimes. And, you know, so so we were sort of friends. We got to be friends on on that on that kind of level.
Tell us about the bust up with uh, Chris Isaac because they sort of became estranged, didn't they, in a way? Well, I mean, it really began probably back in as early as 1982 when what happened was Eric Jacobson, and for listeners who don't know who Eric Jacobson was, he produced seven top 10 hits for the Love and Spoonful in the mid-60s. And then he produced the top 10 hit for Norman Greenbaum with Spirit in the Sky. He discovered Tim Harden, who Bob Dylan once said was the greatest songwriter ever. So Eric Jacobson is an important guy because of who he discovered and who he worked with and his and his success basically on his own terms. And so anyway, he quote unquote discovered Silvertone and he th- he saw saw them. He thought Chris Isaac was a star. The first time he saw him, he saw the guy, he thought he was charismatic. He thought he so he had the charisma, he had the looks and he had the voice to be a star. And so once Eric Jacobson got involved, it was there was a big focus on Chris Chris compared to to Jimmy. And so at a so at a certain point Chris Isaac had the sort of power in the situation to make the other members of the bands sign contracts. And at that point he decided that the royalty split was not going to be 50-50 between him and Jimmy or between him and the, the other guys in the band. Wasn't going to be, you know, 25, 25, 25, 25. He decided it was going to be 40 to him and then 20 to each of the other guys. So that did not sit well with Jimmy. And it also, the contract also gave uh, Chris, he could just fire anyone at any time. And if someone, and one of the guys, the drummer, he wouldn't sign the contract. So he was out of the band at that point. He also was not able to cut it in the studio, according to Eric Jacobson, who was a real perfectionist in the studio. So, so anyway, the drummer was gone, and pretty soon the bass player was gone, and then it was just Chris and Jimmy with uh, and Eric Jacobson taking twenty percent off the top, and then uh, Chris and Jimmy, Chris taking eighty percent of of the eighty percent that was left over, and Jimmy taking twenty percent of it. So when that happened. Jimmy, that didn't sit well with Jimmy. And then there was talk between him, Isaac and Jimmy, of them being co-songwriters, you know, collaborating together on songs. I mean, Jimmy had written written the music and and the come up with the concept for the Avengers' most popular song, a song called We Are the One. I mean, Chris Isaac had had any songs that had that kind of popularity at the time, but yet Isaac wanted he, he basically, according to Jimmy, Jimmy was going to get 5% and Isaac was going to take 95% of the songwriting royalties. So Jimmy, that was not happening. So Jimmy just never did a songwriting deal with, with Isaac. And so that was another thing that he was, um, that, I mean, there was just a bitterness that sort of developed. But, but Jimmy loved um, making music. He loved the creative side of working with Chris Isaac and working with Eric Jacobson, of making the records, of of playing live. And so all of those factors, you know, when he was doing all that stuff, he was really, you know, he was into it, but yet there was this, um, there was this dissatisfaction with uh, the, the, you know, financial side of things, which, you know, when you're not making any money, that doesn't, isn't such a big deal. But when you have a top 10 hit record and suddenly the guy who's got his name on the song is getting, you know, royalties from, you know, a million, two million sales of albums, 
and you're getting 20% of the record mechanical royalties, the royalties for the record sales, but you're not getting anything uh, from, from any of the songs, then there's a real, you, you know, suddenly there's a huge disparity. And, um, and I think maybe Jimmy thought, especially with Wicked Game, where he was so responsible. I mean, Chris Isaac told me how responsible, you know, Jimmy is really responsible for this record being a hit. Well, Jimmy, I think Jimmy maybe thought, and certainly his girlfriend at the time, the actress Jennifer Rubin thought that Jimmy thought things would change. That, you know, here he'd been responsible for this thing being a hit, that that would make things different. And so maybe he would get a different, you know, things could change regarding maybe royalties or whatever, but they didn't and they weren't going to. And, and, and basically anyone who has, has ever sort of looked at how financial things go, it never goes that way. I mean, it's like, if, like, if you don't have the right deal before things happen, after they happen, you're certainly not going to get the deal. I don't know if the right deal is the right word, but the deal you want, you're not going to get it later. You better make sure you have it before things hit. And so um, anyway, uh, but Jimmy ended up getting fired. He was very, dis- I mean, he might have quit. I don't know. But he got fired because he was so messed up on drugs that he couldn't remember his parts that were when they, he went to rehearsals. And it got so bad that uh, Jacobson and Isaac just, you know, basically realized that until until Jimmy was able to clean up, he wasn't going to be able to be in the band. And there was a tour that was going to happen. And so um, so so Jimmy was was let go. And and they brought in a fill-in guitarist for the tour. And I mean, Isaac waited three years before permanently replacing Jimmy. 